Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you. Good to be with you this morning. Good to be together to worship God. And we're going to be thinking about worship. Uh, last week, um, Pastor Ian was speaking about uh, prayer. And we're just thinking about some of our key priorities as we look forward to how we want to live our lives as a church, as a fellowship, as a people uh, through the year. So the passage we're going to look at in just a moment is from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 3 to 14. And uh, just going to be thinking a little bit about what Paul says there. We're going to be looking at some other scriptures uh, as we head through as well. Uh, some of you might have noticed that when I preach, I tend to use movies as sort of illustrations. It's got to a point now, Steve Clark keeps bugging me every time I see him. Yeah, I don't know if Steve's here this morning. He's not? No, okay, that's fine. Well, he probably bugs you as well, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't mean generally, just don't let him listen to this sermon this morning, obviously. But uh, yeah, no, Steve keeps asking me, what, what, so, Jeff, tell me, a, tell me a film. What, what's the good film to watch at the minute? So I've got three f- film recommendations, three song recommendations built into the sermon so that if you, if you miss anything else and you don't hear anything I preach about, you'll hear that and at least they'll know you've got good taste in movies. And songs as well. Because if you like the movies and the songs I like, that means you've got good taste. Anyway, we won't go any further than that. But uh, we'll see how we get on. So that's going to be sort of woven uh, through the message this morning. So we're thinking about worship and uh, this praise, this uh, phrase rather, for the praise of his glory, which comes from Ephesians chapter 1. So let's just have a look at these verses together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us, in accord, sorry, that he's lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his, I realized I didn't move that forward, sorry about that folks, um, He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. In him, we have also been given an inheritance, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's people to the praise of his glory. Amen. 
That was a bit of a mouthful to read. I don't know whether it's a bit of a mouthful to hear. Just so you know, I think that passage there it has the longest sentence in the whole Bible. That Paul is so excited, he just keeps spilling it out and spilling it out and spilling it out. And it's also one of the most densely packed with theology. So there's only little strands that really we have time to pull out of this this morning. And so we're going to be thinking about uh, that idea that in worship, our lives were created for what? For the praise of his glory. Um, Just over 30 years ago, uh, you wouldn't have found me here in Scotland. In fact, I would have been in London. I studied at London Bible College. And um, I'm from Lancashire. And very strangely, uh, my best friend at Bible College was from Yorkshire. Now, if anybody, I don't know if you understand that up here, that's like fundamental warfare. I mean, it's so much warfare that uh, Shakespeare wrote a whole play about it, Richard III, about the war between Yorkshire and uh, Lancashire. But anyway, we became good friends. Only the grace of God could make that happen. Um, Anyway, this particular day, it was in the summer term, uh, Nick and I were in his room, which overlooks a quad, And on the other side of the quad are some of the lecture rooms. And some of the lecture rooms were full of people uh, listening to their sort of Old Testament theology lectures. And uh, Nick and I decided to have a sort of worship time. Nick played the guitar and um, I pretended to sing. Uh, But I was very enthusiastic. Anyway, we were singing away, singing away. Very, I have to say, loud. I was really, I'm not a great singer, but I, I, I give it my all. Anyway, we'd been there about 10 minutes when there was a knock on the door. And somebody came in, and they said they asked whether we could be quiet. Uh, and we were, like, rather puzzled. We were like, well, who the heck are we disturbing? And uh, she pointed out of the window across the quad uh, to one of the lecture rooms, and there was 30 people sat in there just staring through the window at us. <laughs> like, we were like, oh, no, this is so humiliating. And so we completely shut up, and uh, we, we got on with doing some other things. Um, But I don't know about you, whether you're uh, passionate about worship, whether you love worshiping God, uh, I do. And and if you don't, well, I've got a big news for you. This is what your life is meant to be all about, is worshiping him, because your life was created for the praise of his glory. So we're going to think a bit about that, first of all. And we're going to think about three aspects of this. Some of them might be surprising. Initially, we're just going to think about worshiping in the body of Christ. Then we're going to think about recognizing the body of Christ. You might be wondering, where the heck does that come from? And then thirdly, about submitting in the body of Christ. And that might be the bit where you're going, oh, please don't talk about that. Uh, But we'll get there, and hopefully we'll see, and hopefully God will do some speaking uh, into our lives. I guess in many ways, we carry an automatic assumption that when we're thinking about worshiping, most of the time we'll be thinking about singing. We'll be thinking about doing that and gathering together, maybe as a congregation, or maybe just singing on your own at home with a good uh, CD on and um, belting it out. And so that is right. Singing and music are significant in Scripture. After all, we've got the Psalms, huge number of Psalms, the hymn book of the Bible, essentially. Uh, There's lots going on in there. Singing is biblical. And I don't know if you knew, in fact, Uh, When we were praying, uh, Jacques was praying a bit about spiritual warfare and the defeat of the enemy. Uh, But I don't know if you know, in the Old Testament, there's this phrase, and we we use it sometimes, to sing a new song. 
Well, the whole idea in the Old Testament was that if God won a victory for his people, the automatic thing you would do is write a new song. You would write a song about it. So there's a good example uh, after the Israelites get through the Red Sea and uh, God brings the waves of the Red Sea down on top of Pharaoh's uh, soldiers and his chariots and horses and that Miriam Moses, they sing a new song. It's a song about the victory of God. So singing was a really important part of the Bible story, the history of God's people. It wasn't just singing in worship, but it was telling of the amazing victories that God brings us. And so it was a great way of really grabbing your heart and getting you connected. One of the things I really realize is very often, you know, things that we preach as preachers up front, we're trying to get through to your heart. Sometimes it's hard to get through, but very often a song will do it. You'll find yourself, I don't know if you've done it, humming a song, uh, singing a song, the words come to you. And somehow or another, God uses music to reach deep inside of you, to that deep place to speak and to touch your life. In Ephesians chapter 5, a bit later on uh, than the passage that we're reading, uh, Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus and he he, he talks about speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then he says, sing, make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God. And so singing, yes, gathering together for that sort of singing, just as we've been doing this morning, is an important part of worship, but it isn't the whole deal. And I guess one of the things just to sort of clarify for us really early on is just because you're singing, it doesn't mean you're worshiping. I I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that position where you know, maybe it's here in church, you're singing the words and your head is completely somewhere else. You're thinking about work on Monday and what's going to happen there. And and it's almost like your mouth's on autopilot. Um, I nearly uh, missed a turn coming home yesterday. I don't know where we would have ended up. But I was supposed to turn left near Pitlochry in order to get back on the A9. And uh, I'd even just told Trish 30 seconds before that that's where we were going. That's exactly where we were headed. But in the next 30 seconds, my head was so preoccupied with other things to do with the rest of the week, that uh, Trish sort of yelped at me and said, stop. And, uh, well, I didn't fully stop. I jammed my foot on the brakes and then realized that I was just about to miss the turn and, and took it. But the same thing happens to us even here in church on a Sunday, if we're honest about it. We're not all here. I thought that you were not all here a lot of the time, to be honest with you. I don't know if that, that's, something, that's a phrase we use in Lancashire. I don't know if you use it up here. That is not all here. Anyway, it's a bit of an insult, so I won't say it to you. Just pretend I didn't. Anyway, there's, there's, I think one of the things that I love, you know, especially about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus says this. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Sometimes if you want to know where your heart is, just think about, think about the things that you're preoccupied with. Think about the things that are important that you spend more time thinking about. And sometimes that's what happens in worship too. Our heart gets dragged off to all sorts of different places. We miss the turn to worship. But you know, singing is not the only aspect to worship. 
out there in the Old Testament, probably the most common Old Testament word for worship is the word that means service. And um, it, it's, sometimes it's tricky because if you've got a Bible, English Bible translation, it just keeps using the word worship. You're not to know that actually the word that they're using there is service, service, service. So I'll give you an example. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, Moses and God are having a conversation. And God has told Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh because I'm going to set my people free. And God tells Moses to say this. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me. So that they may worship me. And I guess in our heads, we sort of imagine, yeah, they're going to go to the mountain in the middle of the desert and all get together and have a great big sort of singing, worshipful sort of session before the mountain and before the presence of God. But actually, the word there is for worship is the word to serve. Now, don't forget at this particular point, the Israelites, the Jews, were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. He was using them to build all of his great architecture. So when God says, let my people go so that they may worship me, actually it has a really powerful meaning because you can hear it like this. Pharaoh, your slaves are my people. So let them go because they're going to serve me now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So it isn't just about worshiping the sense of singing a song. It's actually about a life given over to the service of God. Let my people go because they're going to serve me now. When we worship God, there's a turnaround. There's a change of priority. There's a change in who we are serving. First song recommendation. And Trish, my wife, by the way, is going to groan when I say this. It's Bob Dylan. Um, and so this, I'm sorry, this gives an idea of my age. Some of you younger people are going, who's Bob Dylan? Uh, Bob Dylan. And the song is, you've got to serve somebody. You, amen. There we go. You've got to serve somebody. So if you've not heard it, it's absolutely brilliant. He basically sings through a whole list of different jobs and professions. But whoever you are, you've got to serve somebody. Now, if you want younger people, if you want to know what Bob Dylan sounds like, um, if you imagine being as depressed as you can be, put about five pieces of gravel in your mouth, gargle them, and then put a clothes peg on your nose and start singing. That's Bob Dylan. You'll recognize his <laughs> Sorry. That's Bob Dylan. Uh, you'll recognize his voice anywhere. So he says you've got to serve somebody. Basically, the essence of it is this. We are all serving somebody, even if it isn't ourselves. And God's call upon our life when we're called to worship is to serve him. And if you're not serving God, now here's here's a mind-blowing thing. If you're not serving God, that means you're serving something else. And biblically, anything you serve that isn't God is an idol. In other words, anything we serve other than God is an idol. Now, if we're honest, probably... Where most of us are in a position where we say, yeah, yeah, I've, I've given my life to Christ. I, I worship God. But there are times when we're not fully serving him. The biggest problem we have is a divided life. Do you know in the Old Testament, for the Israelites, most of the time, God didn't send the prophets because the people of God had stopped worshiping him. No, the problem wasn't that. The problem was that they were worshiping God 
and idols as well. Why? Because they essentially saw these other religions' gods as a bit like a, a um, trying to think what the best phrase to use is, an insurance policy. In other words, if Yahweh, is, if the God of Israel doesn't come through, then I've got a backup policy with Baal or with Ashtoreth. You know, they'll come through and sort the crops out if Yahweh doesn't do it for me. Idolatry is not worshipping something instead of God. Very often, especially for God's people, it's worshipping or serving something as well as God. It is a divided loyalty when God wants us wholly for himself. Oh, God is a jealous God. But you know, one of the other things about this is that if, serve, if worship is service, then actually, in a sense, it means that everything is worship. Or at the very least, everything can be worship if you put your mind to it. Um, you can serve God in driving the car. You can serve God while you're washing the dishes. It means the dishes have got to be really clean by the end of it for it to really to be worship. You can serve uh, serve God by doing the ironing. I'm, I'm going to give you too much information here. I've told you before I do the ironing. I find it really relaxing. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, here we go. I iron my boxer shorts. Now, some of you are laughing and some of you are going, what's wrong with that? I iron my boxer shorts. All the wives are going, I iron his boxer shorts. Can, can anybody iron their boxer shorts? What on earth? What, only me? Flip. Well, I am dedicated. I, 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 I worship through ironing. I, I'm, I just serve God in, in that way. Particularly, it's a ministry I have. Okay, there we go. There's a few things I would suggest in the sermon that you just ignore and pretend you didn't hear. That's probably one of them. Anyway. So everything is worship, or everything can be worship, and which means that that can transform our everyday life, because we're living with a sense of being mindful that God is here, that God is with me, and that I'm dedicating whatever act I am doing to doing it really, really well for his glory. Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound amazing? Now, one of the dangers, of course, I'm not sure whether Pastor Ian might have mentioned this when it came to prayer. Uh, but is worshipping in the car. I don't know if anybody puts Christian music on in the car. There is a danger. Have you ever, have you ever found yourself, Lord? <laughs> and then you've realized you're driving, and of course that should not be happening. I remember one day lifting my hand off the steering wheel, um, and the Holy Spirit quickly told me that if driving was a worshipful activity, it must be with two hands on the wheel. So let me just emphasize that. But obviously it can be dangerous. You get distracted. But no, I need to be a more worshipful uh, driver of the car. And um, I won't tell you why. Anyway, but I suppose what this tells us is everything is going to be worship. Then worship is, first of all, an attitude. It's an attitude. It's of a servant heart. One of the other words in the Old Testament that means worship is the word that, that says to bow down. So there is that sense that when we're worshipping God, our lives are bowed down before him. Because it's an attitude. True worship isn't about me, it's about him. It isn't about me getting or receiving. 
or having a fantastic time because I'm going here, there, or everywhere to find the next worship buzz. It is all of it outward towards God, towards him, giving myself to him, giving myself for him. Which means that ultimately, worship is our very purpose for existing. Our lives, says Paul to the church in Ephesus, were created for the praise of his glory. Incredible, isn't it? If you want to know what the purpose of your life is, it's for the praise of his glory. That is it. It's the highest calling. It's why we were made in the first place. Paul told us here in Ephesians 1 that God chose us for that purpose. So that we would be for the praise of his glory. It tells us that God has a plan for our lives. What is the plan? The plan is so that in everything we can be for the praise of his glory. So God created you. He knew you before you were born. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He chose you. He created good works for you to do in advance. And all of it was not about you. All of it was about him. We are called to be a living demonstration of the praise of God's glory to this world. Do you know what? In a certain sense, it shouldn't be necessary to get people through the door of the church from out there to see what worship looks like. They should just see us at work. They should just see us as we're driving down the street. They see us in anything or everything we're doing And recognize and discern that there is something completely different about that. So worship is service. Now one of the things I just want to say here is, um, certainly as a pastor, I came across this a lot. I meet a lot of what I might call do-it-yourself Christians. Do-it-yourself Christians are Christians who essentially think it's just about them and the Lord. And that's all that matters. Now, we live in an age, especially as evangelicals, where we talk about my personal relationship with God. And that is absolutely right. But one of the warnings, I would say, is that sometimes we're at risk of privatizing worship so much, personalizing worship so much, that we think it's only about us. It's only about me and my relationship with God. And, you know, the church has got nothing to do with it. And so there becomes a danger of solo worshippers. I remember a lady that used to come to my church. She had a, um, a, a particular time where she, was, she couldn't come out of the house. She was uh, really ill. And I bumped into her in the street one day. And uh, I said, oh, hi, it's great to see you. You're looking a lot better. How long has it been? She said, oh, yeah, no, I've been, I've been great. Uh, the last four months, I've been totally fine. And I said, oh, great, okay. So, well, I haven't seen you at church And she said to me, no, no, I don't really see why I need to go to church. Uh, What I realized while I was off ill is, you know, me me and father are just fine. You know, that's all I need. And besides which, you know, people at church, they annoy me. You know, I get distracted by what other people do. So, yeah, it's it's just me and him, and that's great. And I just remember thinking, no, absolutely not. This is not great, and this is not right. Now, of course, if we're off ill and we can't make it together to be part of a congregation, that's not a great thing, I understand. Hopefully, the body of Christ gathers around people in those situations so they continue to have community. But please do not think 
that we can privatize our worship to the extent that it's just about me and him and the church and God's people have nothing to do with it. In which case, instead of talking about my personal relationship with God, maybe it would be more biblical to talk about our corporate relationship with God. In fact, you know what? I don't hear many people talk about our corporate relationship with God because we are so focused on me, myself, and the Lord. It's maybe something for us to think about. So if we're not meant to be do-it-yourself Christians, what are we meant to be? Well, we're meant to be do-it-together Christians. There's a word in the New Testament that appears about 100 times. And uh, we, we have two words for it to translate it, and it's the phrase, one another. Uh, it appears so often, especially in Paul's letters to the church, that you can almost make a verb out of it. I, I'm, we're going to one another each other. Okay, he love each other, care for each other, serve one another, all, all sorts of words. If you read through Paul's letters, there's absolutely huge numbers of them. But of course, to be a one another community, you can't be on your own. You have to be with God's people. You have to be attending congregation, connected to one another through our life group. Now, just in case you are in a position where a lot of the time you prefer to be a do-it-yourself Christian, I've got news for you. And of course, if you're here in the building, somebody might be watching this from home afterwards and you can't do what I'm about to say. But as a congregation, I want you to take a few seconds to just look around you. So that means turn in your heads. Have a look. Have a look at the people who are around you. Okay? Yeah? Rough, eh? Oh, yeah. Okay. Here's the news. Here's the news. You are going to spend eternity with these guys. All right? Eternity. Now, if we're honest, think about where you're sat this morning. You sat where you sat for a reason. Yeah? And you sat with who you sat with for a reason. And you didn't sit with people that you didn't sit with for a reason. Is that right? I mean, anyway... You know what I'm trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say? We've got our favorites, haven't we? And we've got the people we try and avoid. You know, when we're outside at coffee and we see them heading towards us, we duck. We sort of get, we do the whole American football thing. And before you know it, you're out the door. We've avoided them. Okay. But we're going to spend time together for eternity. That is our future destiny. So wouldn't it be rather better getting... Get, get practicing. Let's practice for eternity now by actually going and talking to somebody you don't know. By actually going and talking to somebody who really, really annoys you. Now, I'm not saying there's lots of people that annoy you, but, you know, if we avoid each other, we're not going to get anywhere. If we're going to be do-it-together Christians, it's a recognition that our eternal destiny is together. And so the togetherness starts here. We've got to practice it. It doesn't just happen automatically. Well, there you go. That's a challenge for you uh, to think about. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when we are in glory before the throne of God worshipping together? I love some of the parts of the book of Revelation where it describes it. Uh, and it describes the sound of God's people worshipping God as a sound of rushing waters. I remember I went to, I'm a Liverpool fan, uh, Liverpool Football Club that is. 
and um, a lot of my family are from Liverpool. I remember in about 1976, I went to watch a, a game at Anfield for the first time. And as we journeyed up the terraced streets towards the stadium, I heard this sound. It, it stays with me. And it was, the sa- it was a sound like that of rushing waters. What was it? It was 50,000 people singing and cheering. Wow. Now, they weren't cheering for God. You know, they were probably cheering for Phil Neal or somebody like that. But the, the sound really got to me, and it stayed with me even now. We are going to be standing before the, thro- the throne of God, worshipping like that. Now, I don't know if you have places where you go where you feel more in touch with God. Like, I love being out on the mountains, or I go out at night to watch the stars. God just touches my heart. I find it so easy to worship God in situations like that. Some of you might have songs that just immediately just grab you and take you there, and you could almost just start weeping because you're so much in touch with worshiping the Lord. My second song recommendation uh, this morning, and I've recommended this guy before, so hopefully his sales are going up, is Don Francisco. Um, Thank you. We've got a real great team support over here. I don't know where it's coming from. So Don Francisco... The, the album, if you can ever get hold of it, because it's not so easy, is uh, the live concert. And um, I think I was looking on Apple Music. I think you might be able to download it from there. But there's a particular song called Too Small a Price. And Don Francisco tends, his songs tend to be biblical stories, and he sings them. But he sings them from the point of view of a particular character. So the song Too Small a Price is about the thief on the cross Not the one who curses Jesus, but the one who says to Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So the whole song is about nine minutes long, um, is about the thief on the cross. What I love is the song doesn't finish when he dies. The song finishes when he arrives in heaven. uh, And he's there with with Abraham and all of the saints in glory. And he's there as Christ arrives having died. Jesus says to him, don't forget, today you will be with me in paradise. And in the song, you see him standing there with all of the saints of old as Jesus arrives in heaven and as the gates of hell collapse. And this song, I I bumped, I played it to Trish and Hannah last night at the dining table at the end of our meal. And I bumped the volume up really, really hard for the end bit because it's absolutely glorious. I cry every time I listen to it. So if you want a song that takes you to glory, gives you a glimpse of something amazing, and is about a biblical story, listen to uh, the song by Don Francisco, uh, Too Small a Price. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. But for each of us, there may be songs that take us to those places. Now, I've already said that we should be gathering together in worship, not to be DIY solo Christians. But in actual fact, I want to say something else here about our private worship time. This is where the first movie recommendation comes in, and that is the uh, remake of the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Has anybody seen this? This version, I think it's absolutely brilliant. It is a lovely, lovely, beautiful film. Walter Mitty is a guy who lives in his head, in his imagination. He's just got this whole secret world where he imagines himself doing all sorts of amazing things. Well, I want to talk for a moment just about not having a secret life, but in a sense having secret worship. In Matthew chapter 6, 
Jesus condemns the Pharisees for the way that they are worshipping. And he looks at the three main sort of worship pillars of the Jewish faith, which were prayer, fasting, and giving. And Jesus says, and he shows the picture of how the Pharisees keep doing these things in public. You know, standing on a street corner and magnanimously giving their money away. Standing in front of the the crowds and saying these glorious, wonderful, complicated prayers. And fasting, making themselves look completely terrible and awful and miserable. Just pretty much how I come to church every Sunday, you know. Now I'm only messing. Uh, and, And Jesus says they are doing this in order to be seen by men. They're doing it for human praise. Because all they're thinking about is not God, but they're thinking about how they appear to other people. So what Jesus says is the solution to that is go and lock yourself in at home. And these key spiritual activities of worship start in the secret place. The secret life. The secret life of worship. Instead of robbing God of his praise. In our secret place, we worship there. In a way... What Jesus is saying is that worship starts in the wardrobe. It's in the most locked away place. We've just got a new cat, and I keep finding the cat in, in my cupboard. And it's got a habit. It likes to stick its head inside my shoes as deep as it can. And so I keep finding the soles of my shoes. You know, the insoles, they're all over the place. So I can't go and pray in the wardrobe because that's where the cat is, and the cat is just... its too much trouble. But you will have your own secret place, your private place. The bottom line is what Jesus is saying here, that that it shouldn't be that our worship is only in the congregational setting. He's saying worship starts at home. It starts in the car. It starts when nobody else is around. And our worship, the worship we give to God on a Sunday is the overflow of our private, personal, individual worship. So that's where the consistency of worship comes from. So that's fine, being worshippers, but let's just move on for a moment. We've thought about worshipping in the body of Christ, and just very quickly, I just want to mention a couple of other things. And the second one is this, recognizing the body of Christ. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth about what's happening when they have communion, when they have the Lord's Supper. And it's a bit of a nightmare. It's a bit of a mess. But Paul says something really quite interesting there. And in verse 29, he says this. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and ill, and a number have fallen asleep. Now, a lot of people have just interpreted that as when you have communion... They basically think Paul's saying, you've got to recognize that the bread is the body of Christ, okay? And if you just eat it and and just eat it just like a normal meal, then you're eating and drinking uh, in an unworthy manner, and you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Now, I've spoken here about recognizing the body of Christ, and the word there in 1 Corinthians 11.29 can be recognizing or discerning. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So there's another way that you can understand this verse. Now imagine here this morning that we've got communion, we've got the bread and we've got the cup. 
What Paul is saying is, when he says, when you're taking of the bread, the body of Christ, you, you, when you do that, you need to discern, recognize the body of Christ. He's not talking just about the bread. He's talking about the fact that you're sat there amongst, amidst the body of Christ. In other words, the body of Christ isn't just what you're holding in your hand. The body of Christ is this group of people who are sat around you in whom Jesus lives and dwells. This is, this people are the body of Christ. And what that means is that when we're taking and eating of communion, if we're in disagreement or broken relationship with other members of the body of Christ, In that sense, we make a mockery of eating the bread and drinking of the cup because Christ's death is meant to redeem us. It's meant to restore us from those broken relationships. God can do something powerful and amazing if we discern that the body of Christ isn't just this piece of bread representing Jesus' body, but it's the people of God living around us. Interestingly, the word here, discern, it's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere in Corinthians about the gift of the discernment of spirits. So it's this sense of discerning what? Not discerning spirits, but discerning that the Holy Spirit of Jesus is dwelling in the people who are sat all around you. So how can I eat this if I'm in a broken relationship with those people? In Matthew uh, chapter 5, Let me just move on. I'm not there. I've not got that there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says something really interesting. This is on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is fascinating because it's about a worship context. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled them and then come back and offer your gift. not amazing? In other words, when we come to church on a Sunday, here and we're coming to worship, I wonder how many of us, when, you, when we are worshiping, the Lord speaks to us about a difficult situation or a fragmented relationship, somebody that we need to go and talk to. Jesus is essentially saying here there are times when it is appropriate to abandon the public worship in order to get right in the private worship of your relationship with another person. I remember in my church at Lanc- uh, Preston, a number of years ago, we did a special communion service where we had the seats in a circle. And what we did was, during the communion, we said to, po- to folks, if there is anybody that you want to take bread or a cup to, because you just want to bless them and pray for them, anybody with whom you've had a difficult, fragmented relationship with that you want to maybe, it's you going and apologizing, asking for forgiveness. It may be that they've done something to hurt you and you want to go to them and and see if you can make that right. Use this communion. And so people would come and break bread and take it and serve it to other people. That was their act of work. I have to say to this day, in the 40 years that I have been a Christian, that is the most powerful service I have ever, ever been in. The restoration of relationships was astonishing. And that was worship. That was worship. But sometimes it's the most uncomfortable things that we want to avoid. So who are you looking at? When you're worshiping, 
who are you looking at? Well, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And I'm sure that that is what most of us are doing when we are worshiping. But I wonder, has anybody here ever got really distracted by other people in church and by what they're doing? Um, it, it gets really difficult at this point because we've all got different tastes and different preferences about how we want the worship service to be. Um, but instead of, instead of discerning in worship, one of the things that can happen is we can end up looking at other people instead of Jesus, and that just takes our heart to a whole different uh, place. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there, back there in the Old Testament, um, I'm just putting that picture up of Jesus and his disciples, by the way, just to remind us of that first situation of him with his, um, with his disciples, just sharing and breaking bread. Um, but in 2 Samuel 6, King David was part of a ceremony, a procession, where they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place of God's throne, back to Jerusalem. And there was a massive celebration, worship group there, all of this. And David, it tells us, stripped down just to a linen undergarment, and he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And it tells us that his wife, Michal, was looking out from the city, and she saw him. And it says there in 2 Samuel 6 that Michal despised her husband in her heart when she saw this. And one of the difficulties in worship is that sometimes we get distracted or our hearts and minds get pulled into criticism or judgment of other people. And it just robs us of where we are at and being right with God. So one of the important things about worship is that we are ensuring that instead we fix our eyes on Jesus. Now I want to just uh, tell you about the next film that I've got as a little bit of an example here. And it's uh, called The Hidden Life. It says up there, cinema at its mightiest and holiest. I don't know if anybody's ever watched a film by Terence Malick. They're, they're, they're very distinctive movies. You could, you could argue they're a little bit slow and ponderous, sort of quite philosophical. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just giving you a little bit of a warning there. It's not like an action movie or something like that. But this is the true story of a peasant farmer from Austria during World War II. Now, Austria had um, a, a treaty at the time with Germany, so Austria and Germany were fighting on the same side. And this peasant farmer who was a Christian was called up uh, to join the German military to fight for Hitler. And so he's taken with all of the recruits to an army base, and they all have to line up and swear allegiance to Hitler. And when it comes to him, uh, this farmer called uh, Franz Jagerstatter, he refuses to swear obedience to Hitler, uh, basically because he's obedient to God uh, and he's not willing to serve Adolf Hitler. And at that point, he's arrested and he's thrown into cells and he's beaten and uh, he's never released from that point on. And the whole film is, is about what happens here. He's got a wife and two girls uh, back up there in the hills having to run the farm without, without him. And uh, now the film is called A Hidden Life because it's based on a quote from the end of one of uh, the most, um, it's regarded as one of the greatest English novels uh, by George Eliot. 
interestingly, a woman who had to write under a man's name in order to get published. So the book was Middlemarch, and the whole of the book Middlemarch finishes with these words. They're amazing words. She says this, For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and, th- and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And that's, those are the very final words of the book. Terence Malick uses those words as a commentary on Franz Jagerstatter's life. He's basically saying, this is an ordinary man uh, who, who just stood up for God and refused to side with evil. And it cost his family everything. Uh, the final scene of the film uh, finishes with him as he's just about to be beheaded uh, by a guillotine along with some other prisoners. But uh, in the film, the German officers, in between beatings, they berate him and they say this. They said, nobody will know your name. Nobody will remember you. It's futile. Just sign the paper. But he wouldn't sign the paper because God knew his name, because God remembered him, because serving God is never futile. And he would bow to no one but God. And he lived a hidden life. You may never have known of him. The irony is, the irony is the Nazis were saying, you will never be remembered. Nobody will know what you did. Well, there's a book. You can get it of his letters from prison. There's an audio book you can listen to. And now there's a movie about his life. An ordinary peasant farmer who just said, no, I will not worship him. I will only worship the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. So finally, very, very quickly, just submitting uh, in the body of Christ. One of the old main test- old New Testament words uh, that is used for worship, I've mentioned already, is to bow down. So that's about submitting our lives uh, to God. I think probably today, submission is a dirty word in the church, in an age of self and the individual Uh, We don't like talking about it, but Jesus himself shows us the very heart of submission there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus died upon a cross, a horrific death, but in the hours before this, he's praying in the garden and he cries out to God and says, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. He wants out. He doesn't want to go to the cross in his flesh. And then he says these amazing words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Incredible, isn't it? Jesus tells the disciple that his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. Let me say to you folks this. Submission is the only way that we can do the will of God. Without it, we could never obey him. Our flesh doesn't want to serve God. Our spirit does. But the rest of it, our our sinful flesh drags us back. Submission is the act of bowing to God in worship in every choice that we ever make, not just in Sunday worship, but in every situation. Submission isn't a dirty word. Submission is a holy word. And Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, not just about submitting ourselves to God, but submit to one another, he says, out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I often I will hear people come back from church and say, that was a fantastic worship service. 
the Holy Spirit was really moving, and, uh, you know, the songs were incredible. I don't hear many people come and say, you know, that worship service was incredible. I really, the Spirit was moving, and we all absolutely loved submitting to one another. I don't know anybody that's ever said that to me about a church service. And yet, Paul lines that up as just as significant here as, as singing. He says, keep being filled with the Spirit, speaking to, not to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music, always giving thanks and submitting to one another. It's the last thing our flesh wants to do. But you know, it's no wonder that in the letter that Paul's that puts such a strong emphasis on submission, his other main theme is building up. In Ephesians, he talks about building up a temple. And he says, we're the temple of God. And then he says, building up the body of Christ. And he says, and we are the body of Christ. So we've got submission and being built up all there together. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's only through Holy Spirit being inspired that submitting to one another is possible for us to build each other up. It does not come easy. We don't want to do it, but it's absolutely necessary. So very quickly, my final film is a very old one. It's a wonderful life. Life is amazing. It is a wonderful life. Now, has anybody here not watched It's a Wonderful Life? Not watched. Oh, my goodness. James Stewart, you've got to watch this film. You will cry. It's so moving. It's a difficult film. It doesn't pull the punches. It's set during the Great Depression and the banking crash in America. It's absolutely incredible. But just to warn you, it has a good ending. All right? So I've ruined it now. But... It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful life. And let me just say this to you. If you want to live a wonderful life, and not an easy life, by the way, a wonderful life is not an easy life, then worship in the body of Christ. Recognize, discern the body of Christ is all around you. And finally, submit to one another in the body of Christ. If you do those things, you will have a wonderful life, no matter how tough things are. I'm going to get the worship group back up. I've kept you out of the way long, long enough. Some of you can count. You've heard three films and two songs. That means there's one song left. It's the song we're about to sing. This is my, when you preach, you can get to choose your favorite songs. That great? Great. So some of you are now thinking, I'm going to become a preacher. Yeah? So this is my... This is probably my favorite song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Now, if there's something you did not click on this morning, it's this. We're not just singing and recognizing God up there, right? If we are the body of Christ, that means God, Jesus is dwelling, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in the people who are sat all around you. So when you stand amazed in the presence this morning, can I ask you, don't just go like this, have a good look around you at the people and be amazed. I'm amazed. Hey, these are amazing people. Why? Because they've got the spirit of Jesus dwelling in them. So don't just do your own thing up here. Have a look around where we're singing this song and just acknowledge the amazing, beautiful, wondrous presence of Jesus in the people all around you. Will you do that? Let's really, sorry, let's really give it some.